every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty Radio Show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian High. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Hey, I hope you brought your track shoes. We have got a lot of territory to cover today. I got a lot to share with you, and I guess it's it's your good fortune that I'm quite overweight and out of shape. So hopefully you won't have too much trouble keeping up. Anyway, thanks, thanks for tuning in. You know, I feel like we have been lied to a lot, particularly in the last couple of years. I don't think it's something new. I don't think government suddenly in the last couple of years, you know, people in power and those who are seeking power suddenly said, you know, if we just stop telling the truth, this would be a whole lot easier to get control over more people and their lives. I think it's a part of human nature that's been around as long as there have been people. But boy, have they pushed the limits in the last couple of years. And I don't, I don't think there's anything that illustrates the depth of deception to which we've been subjected like the way that those in authority eventually come to embrace the very same truths that they've been trying hard to suppress for the past couple of years. Case in point, I've got an article here from L. Reynolds. This is from thefederalist.com, describing how the media and CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, have have quietly, I would say they do it privately if they could, but they've quietly admitted to three COVID truths after nearly two years of lying to our faces about these truths. And I mean, you have to wonder at some level, did they think we wouldn't notice? Would they think that, well, you know, they're just going to forget. They'll do whatever we tell them to do. Not so. The article starts by pointing out the COVID bureaucracy has spent two years now preaching lies, censoring anyone who challenges the lies, and eventually coming around to admit the same truths they previously denounced. So in the case of masks and vaccines, the flip-flop was even more elaborate. They insisted masks didn't work when the masks were scarce and that the vaccine was suspicious, at least under Trump, only to spin around and then tout both. And now that neither works effectively against the Omicron variant, well, the narrative is falling apart once again. So over the weekend, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky went on numerous news shows and bluntly admitted some big truths that critics of COVID mania have been saying all this time. Another admission of hers from August resurfaced on social media after months of the media memory holding it. So L. Reynolds says, look, it's time for the COVID bureaucrats to come clean. It's about time they did. And Walensky's comments don't cover the half of it, but at least we're old enough to remember what the same group of bullies was saying not too long ago. So the first truth that has come out is that vaccine, the vaccine, doesn't prevent transmission. Our vaccines are working exceptionally well, but they, what they can't do anymore is prevent transmission. Those are Walensky's exact words to CNN's Wolf Blitzer back in August. 
in a clip that uh, popped up over the weekend. If you follow on Twitter, you probably have seen it. But that's not the narrative that we've been inundated with for the past year. USA Today ran a fact check with the headline, Vaccines Protect Against Contracting and Spreading COVID-19. That was back in November of 2021. Quoting health experts who insisted that getting the jab makes people much less likely to be infected, therefore much less likely to spread the virus. Now, President Joe Biden went even further, claiming in July, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. In October, he said, we're making sure healthcare workers are vaccinated because if you seek care at a healthcare facility, you should have the certainty that the people providing that care are protected from COVID and cannot spread it to you. And he continued to parrot the claim just last month, implying that vaccinated people couldn't spread COVID when asked when he asked, how about making sure that you're vaccinated so you do not spread the disease to anybody else? Okay, that's truth number one. Here's truth number two. COVID disproportionately affects the vulnerable. In a Good Morning America appearance, Walensky admitted that the overwhelming number of deaths, we're talking over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. Now that's what we've been saying all along. Their response efforts should focus on protecting vulnerable populations. In other words, don't send COVID-positive patients into nursing homes and maintaining normal activities for populations that are at low risk, like not shutting down schools for semesters on end. But it was Walensky herself who confessed last February that the CDC's guidelines for reopening schools were influenced by the vehemently anti-in-person learning teachers' unions, which Walensky admitted resulted in direct changes to the guidance. Emails uncovered in September further showed that the CDC had changed its school masking policy under pressure from the National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers' union. And it was the coalition of power-hungry lockdown advocates and fawning media who put former, or put disgraced former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on a pedestal, despite his decision to force COVID-positive patients into nursing homes, causing thousands of unnecessary deaths among the most vulnerable. Now, this coalition also worked with the CDC to push months of lockdowns, business closures, mask mandates, travel restrictions, and now vaccine mandates on Americans. Despite the fact that the average healthy American is at low risk of dying from COVID. Truth number three, deaths from and with COVID aren't the same thing. How many of the 836,000 deaths in the U.S. linked to COVID are from COVID and how many are with COVID? Fox News' Brett Beyer asked Walensky on Sunday. Well, those data will be forthcoming, Walensky promised, acknowledging the distinction that Bayer pointed out. But a bureaucracy that was intent on maximizing COVID panic and death counts in, other, in order to undermine Trump and stir the popularity of tyrannical policies wasn't so keen on admitting this distinction in the past. In Washington State, for example, a May 2020 report found the state's health department was over-reporting COVID cases by up to 13% by counting anyone who tests positive for COVID-19 and subsequently dies as a coronavirus death. A subsequent investigation found that Washington health officials appeared to be doing it again in December of the same year. Oh, but it gets worse. In Colorado, gunshot victims were also counted among COVID death tallies if the victims had tested positive for COVID-19 within the last 30 days. And local authorities in Florida counted a man who died in a motorcycle crash as a COVID victim, 
in July of 2020. See, that didn't stop media outlets and bureaucrats like Dr. Anthony Fauci from using inflated death tolls to stoke fear and panic as justification for more restrictions and mandates. So which COVID factoid that anti-lockdowners have been insisting all along will Walensky and the CDC admit next? Who knows? But it's safe to say there won't be any apologies or honest acknowledgments of error. There weren't with masks, there weren't on the ineffectiveness of lockdowns or vaccines or the lab leak theory or schools after all. Instead, you can expect them to use half-truths and flat-out lies to try convincing you they've never been wrong, all evidence to the contrary. Again, this is an article from L. Reynolds, assistant editor at The Federalist. And it's, it's, it's encouraging on the one hand, right? The truth is finally coming out. Still, it's discouraging, though. The, the people in power, the people who have benefited most from this, they are just apparently going to skate on this. If anything, it appears that Rochelle Walensky is the one who's slated to go underneath the wheels of the bus. They're going to throw her under the bus, and uh, Fauci who arguably is one of the most culpable figures in this whole deception, is likely going to skate with the help of uh, his media enablers and with uh, likely the help of a lot of uh, legal muscle provided by the dollars of the pharmaceutical industries, which he has served very well. You know, the crazy thing about it is when the Great Barrington Declaration was released in October of 2020, these are the same people, the CDC, Dr. Fauci, many of the, the, mel- the medical establishment experts, I'm putting that in air quotes, couldn't get to the pulpit or the podium fast enough to, to denounce these doctors who had signed on and helped craft the Great Barrington Declaration. I believe 800,000 plus people, including medical professionals down to little old people like me, have, uh, have signed this declaration. And what it recommended was, first of all, Stop trying to pretend that the government has the power to stop a virus. It doesn't. Now, that doesn't mean you just throw your hands up and let the virus just, you know, do whatever it wants. It's just an acknowledgement that laws of nature haven't changed. The laws of man had limited effect in trying to control nature. Notwithstanding, you know, delusions of grandeur by, held by people in the political class. So the Great Barrington Declaration counseled what we need to do then is target our protection to the most vulnerable. And that doesn't mean we enforce and we make sure the elderly and the the sick stay home and they don't ever come out. It's just that if you're going to put attention on, on trying to protect people, that's where it needs to be. The ones who have the comorbidities, the ones who are elderly, the ones who are at greatest risk. For the rest of us, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the fact that, yes, people have died of COVID-19, but 99.7% of the people who catch this virus will survive it. So, basically, now the CDC is coming out and admitting, yeah, you know, we ought to, uh, since it disproportionately affects the vulnerable, that's where we ought to be putting our focus. Well, that's exactly what the Great Barrington Declaration was saying, but instead... The people who put that information out there, who put that idea out there, because they weren't acting in concert with those in power, were smeared and distorted as well. These are a bunch of fringe doctors who don't even know what they're talking about. I mean, I don't know if you've checked out the bona fides of these uh, doctors who who signed on to the Great Barrington Declaration, but the three primary doctors 
Martin Koldorf, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, and I believe uh, Sunetra Gupta, they are legit. Doesn't mean they're infallible, but in this case, they were right. And it's kind of gratifying to see people in power finally having to admit, yeah, 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 they, they were right. Without admitting that they were right. And of course, the whole idea of deaths from and with COVID, people were talking about how, how those numbers were being inflated and exaggerated. And of course, you know, there was some perverse incentive that was provided for hospitals and, and medical providers. If someone was listed as having died from COVID, they received... I don't know how they, they received some kind of compensation and it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for each one of those patients who was decided to have died from COVID. I mean, this is not to make it out. Yeah, they're all crooks. Every hospital, every health care administrator, they're all crooks. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying when the government is offering to pay and I, I don't know if compensation is the right word or, you know, reimbursement or, or otherwise funding to help deal with the crisis but they pay more when you report this person died of COVID. I mean, I'm sorry, but the guy that they scooped up at the bottom of a bridge, well, you know, we tested his remains and COVID was present. So technically we could say he died with COVID. That's the kind of mental gymnastics that have been going on. At any rate, I'm happy to see some reality beginning to set in. One place that I really wish we would see a shift is in the othering of people who are not vaccinated. Got a great article here from Jared McBrady. And in particular, this is this is not so much a rant against, you know, the mistreatment of the unvaccinated so much as has anybody been paying attention to history? Is anybody looking at uh, what history teaches us and and the warnings that we ought to be observing when it comes to othering people? for the sake of political expediency. This is from the Brownstone Institute, and, and I should probably mention the Brownstone Institute, the folks behind it were, were instrumental in bringing about the great Barrington Declaration. So, just so you know, they, these, are, these are part of the same folks, but what a great resource of information. Jared McBrady, Jared McBrady rather, says, In my teaching, I prepare undergraduate students to become high school history teachers. In one course, teachers, teacher candidates prepare and deliver mock lessons. Now, their peers play the role of high school students, and I observe and give feedback following these practice lessons. Whether coincidence or a reflection of the times, this fall, a good number of mock lessons covered the rise of totalitarianism. In one excellent lesson, a teacher candidate had his students examine the contents that gave rise the context, rather, that gave rise to totalitarianism. And he accompanied this lesson with an excerpt from a world history textbook listing characteristics of totalitarianism. Now, the lesson hit on the true purpose for including totalitarianism in high school curricula. That purpose is not to honor the likes of Hitler, Stalin, or Mussolini, nor is that purpose to teach the methods of totalitarianism as some kind of instruction manual to follow. Rather, the purpose of teaching on totalitarianism is to deliver a warning. Heed well the conditions that yielded totalitarianism so you can recognize and avoid them. Jared McBrady says, as I observed this teacher's lesson, this teacher candidate's lesson, I couldn't help but think about that purpose in the context of our present time. Now, he says, one passage from the lesson's textbook concerned me the most. 
Quote, totalitarian leaders often create enemies of the state to blame for things that go wrong. Frequently, these enemies are members of religious or ethnic groups. Often these groups are easily identified and subjected to campaigns of terror and violence. They may be forced to live in certain areas or are subjected to rules that apply only to them. Now, he points out that creating an enemy of the state requires othering. That's a process of dehumanizing through marginalizing a group of humans as something different, less than, and other. Such othered groups become an easy target to scapegoat, unfairly bearing the blame for a society's ills. Now, history is replete with examples of othering. The ancient Greeks othered based on language, labeling those who did not speak Greek barbarians. In the United States, chattel slavery and segregation were sustained through othering based on skin color. In Nazi Germany, Hitler othered based on religion, casting Jewish people as enemies of the state. Othering frequently plays on people's stereotypes and fears. So, in the U.S., for example, black men have been othered as thugs, playing on fears about violence and criminality. And another example, public health officials in Nazi-occupied Poland played on the primal human fear of disease. Propaganda posters proclaimed, Jews are lice, they cause typhus. And now you have politicians othering the unvaccinated. Now these politicians attempt to scapegoat and marginalize this minority group. And despite knowing that vaccinated and unvaccinated persons alike can spread and contract COVID-19. Jared McBrady says below, I provide the words of three politicians as examples of othering language, and I encourage you to read their words in context. So there are links in his article here that that do that. In the United States, President Joe Biden's September 9th press conference announced sweeping vaccine mandates. He expressed that many of us are frustrated with unvaccinated persons. He laid blame on them for the continued pandemic. Biden claimed that this pandemic of the unvaccinated was caused by nearly 80 million Americans who have failed to get the shot. And he faulted a distinct minority of Americans for keeping us from turning the corner. And he promised we cannot allow these actions to stand in the way of protecting the large majority of Americans who have done their part and want to get back to life as normal. In a September 17th interview on the Quebec talk show La Semaine de Forjuli, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau labeled those who opposed vaccination misogynists and racists. Then he claimed that Canada needed to make a choice. Do we tolerate these people? In France, President Emmanuel Macron gave an interview with Le, Le Parisien on January 4th. In this interview, he characterized the unvaccinated as non-citizens referred to their lies and stupidity as the worst enemies of democracy, and proclaimed, I really want to piss them, meaning the unvaccinated, off. Macron argued that these unvaccinated persons to be only only a very small minority who are resisting, and he asked a chilling question, how do we reduce that minority? Now, in these communications... Jared McBrady points out that Biden, Trudeau, and Macron employed several practices of othering. Number one, they created a majority in-group, signaled by use of the first-person plural, we, us, and a minority othered group, signaled by use of the third-person plural, they, them. Number two, they cast blame for government pandemic policies on that other group. 
the othered group, I should say, keeping us from turning the corner. Number three, they used words to signal to the in-group that they should be angry at the othered group. Many of us are frustrated. I really want to piss them off. Number four, Trudeau and Macron specifically used labels that devalued this othered group. Misogynists, racists, enemies, non-citizens. And number five, most worryingly, Macron and Trudeau questioned whether and how to eliminate this othered group. Do we tolerate these people? And how do we reduce that minority? Now, Jared McBrady says, look, my hope is that all this will amount to nothing more than ignored political rhetoric. Empty bluster, these politicians hope, will score a few popularity points with their electoral base. But he says, my fear is that it will not. Either way, this dangerous othering language must be recognized and condemned. He says, historians study causality, context, conditions, events, and their outcomes. We've examined the conditions that yielded chattel slavery, the gulag, the Holocaust, Jim Crow, Rwanda. This is not an attempt to equate current pandemic policies with these past tragedies. Although you'll find no shortage of people among the press that try anytime someone says, you know, we're acting like, you know, we're, we're headed for conditions like we saw in, in uh, you know, the rise of the Third Reich. Wow, you're comparing us to Nazi Germany and they get all indignant. What's being pointed out is we are on a similar trajectory. Let's not go there. As Jared McBrady says, rather, this is a warning call. We have seen these conditions before. We have seen where they lead. And he says, turn back now. That way leads to darkness. Now, this leaves you and I with a couple of, uh, this leaves us with a couple of different uh, options. First and foremost, I hope you understand, my goal here is not to, to get you angry at the lockdowners. If you feel anger, I understand it, but the anger itself is really not what's productive. Use this as a learning experience to to recognize that uh, tendency to want to other people who, who don't fit your worldview or fit your political paradigm. And don't be that person. Don't be the ones who other individuals or organizations or groups of people that they just don't like. I know that may sound like a bit of a cop-out, because there are some people who are probably like, no, 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 Brian, what we need to do is we need to get pitchforks and torches, and we need to get to the streets, and we need to show these people we really mean business. And I understand the frustration. I really do. You know, there's, there's some news stories or some quotes I see or just people posting things on social media where I feel my blood pressure start to spike because it's like, that's infuriating. They could, they could have so little regard for other people. But I'm not going to suggest that what we've got to do is step in there and correct them by force. Now, I am suggesting you know who you are, you know what you stand for, and, and you be confident enough and firm enough in your beliefs that you trust yourself to make the right decision. And if you put your foot down and say, uh-uh, I won't go along with it, you have the courage to do it, even if you have to stand alone, even if you have to suffer for your beliefs. But rather than trying to control others, which is, after all, at the root of what drives the lockdowner mentality. I need to feel in control, and since I can't control how I feel, I'm going to try to control you and find some satisfaction in that. Don't be that person. 
It may not be as satisfying as, you know, the idea of, well, you know, someday they're going to recognize we were right and then they will rush to drown themselves lemming-like in the sea. Probably not going to happen. This is more along the principle of, look, if you want to improve the world, you got to start where you actually have influence. And that is going to be with yourself first and foremost. I'm paraphrasing Alexander Solzhenitsyn when I say this, but um, in speaking of the great lie, you know, and, and how you don't want to participate in the big lie. He said, let the lie come into the world. Let it even prevail. But not through me. Do you understand the significance of what he's pointing out there? Evil is going to be found in this world. It's a condition of this world. It's part of the natural laws of this world. You and I have control over whether it comes into the world through us, though. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM, or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep, 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compare to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. 
Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the America Out Loud Network. Thank you for being part of our audience. I don't know if you're like me, but I found myself wondering last week as as arguments were being heard before the Supreme Court about uh, whether or not uh, the Biden vax mandates in the workplace, you know, should uh, should be allowed to go forward. And on the one hand, it's like, all right, finally, this is something that got to the courts and the courts are going to decide once and for all whether the federal government can do this. But I'm actually more alarmed at the idea that there are people out there who believe that the federal government explicitly has authority to order people to take a jab that they may not want to take under threat of, well, you can't make a living then. You can't be a part of polite society. And if you found yourself wondering, how did the Supreme Court get to this point where where they're holding questions like this and, and decisions that affect so many people in the palms of their hands, as well as enabling nearly unlimited growth in our national government? Well, you're going to have to do a little bit of a uh, little bit of digging and a little bit of history in order to understand this. Now, I'm going to give you the quick thumbnail sketch: Marbury versus Madison. I know we studied it in school. You know the the gist of it was there were appointments that were made under uh, Madison. That uh, that was it. Madison. Hang on. There were appointments that were made prior to Thomas Jefferson coming into the presidency. And those appointments were made to various, you know, cabinet level positions that uh, that were intended to keep the the regime from before, at least in power through Jefferson's term of, of office. And because some of those appointments weren't made in a timely fashion, um, the challenge was raised that, well, he still has to appoint them just because, you know, the president before him did it and and. Uh, Anyway, it went to the Supreme Court, and the controversy over should he have appointed this or not really wasn't the big outcome of this case. What was the big outcome was the Supreme Court itself stepped up and said, hey, we'll take care of deciding what is constitutional and what isn't constitutional from this point forward. Now, this raises the question, so who did it before? Prior to that decision of Marbury versus Madison, in which the Supreme Court claimed this power, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, of judicial review, who was responsible for, for determining well whether this national, you know, this this piece of national legislation or this policy is legit or not? Because keep in mind the country had been around for, you know, over a decade at that point. So who made that decision of whether something was constitutional or not? The answer is it was the states. The very same states who got together, sent delegates to write that constitution, and who delegated certain authority to the federal government. In other words, the federal government is the creature that they created. So for a part of that creature to suddenly declare itself to be, you know, I am the final arbiter of as to what is constitutional and what isn't. Prior to that, it was the states and the people. And you know what they did? If something came up, if there was a, a particular law that they really didn't like, they ignored it. They nullified it. I think that was an effective check on federal power. But when you had one branch of the federal government, which again was a created entity by virtue of power delegated from the people to the states, which then delegated to the federal government, yeah, the, the whole flow of power was being disrupted there. And that's where we started to get into trouble. Now, there were other cases that came along, but if you really want to understand how, how in the last uh, 80-some years, 
we've seen this incredible amount of growth in the federal government. The Wickard v. Filburn case from 1942 is a great place to start. Now, I'm going to turn to a couple of my favorite resources, and that is uh, James R. Harrigan, who's the uh, uh, the uh, senior editor at the American Institute for Economic Research and also an F.A. Hayek Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, as well as his partner in crime, Dr. Anthony Davies, Anthony Davies, who's the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, as well as an associate professor of economics at Duquesne University. Together, they co-host the Words and Numbers podcast, which I would highly recommend if you want to get an informed, nonpartisan take on some of the things that are going on. But I want to share with you their take on Willard v. Filburn, the Supreme Court case that gave the federal government nearly unlimited power. And it starts with a little bit of a civics lesson here. Keeping in mind that this article was published first back in February, early February of 2020, before the madness set in. But they point out here, every presidential election in the United States follows a clear formula. First, many people with absolutely no chance of winning the presidency declare their candidacies. And those who get washed out of the race late in the game see their fortunes rise, which was their goal from the first. Second, candidates with even a chance at winning their party's nomination drift to the outer fringe of their party's ideology. For Democrats in early 2020, that meant appealing to the most progressive of the progressive wing of their party. And then finally, when the race is set with two candidates, each of them will converge in the middle, eschewing the ideological members of their own parties. Now, this is so common that every politically observant American is fully aware of what's happening, but this dyed-in-the-wool process obscures the most pernicious element of every presidential campaign, which sees both the candidates and the voters they hope to attract ignoring the Constitution at every turn. To the shame of both groups, they don't even seem to realize what they're doing. Presidential candidates lay out their respective agendas from Bernie Sanders' plan to move to single-payer health care to Donald Trump's plan for a wall on our southern border to Elizabeth Warren's plans for just about everything else. But nearly all of these plans are unconstitutional twice over. Not only are presidents not given the authority to do these things, but the federal government itself is also not empowered to do these things. Here's why. The Constitution creates a government of enumerated powers, which means the federal government is only authorized to do things that are specifically listed in the Constitution. And that list is relatively short. The list appears in Article 1, Section 8, and enumerates the proper objects of congressional legislation. So, for instance, Congress can borrow money, coin money, regulate its value, and punish counterfeiters. Congress can regulate commerce with foreign nations among the states and with Indian tribes. They can establish rules for naturalization and bankruptcy. They can establish post roads and post offices, issue patents and copyrights, establish courts inferior to the Supreme Court, punish pirates, suppress insurrections, repel invasions, declare war, raise an army, maintain a navy, and make rules for the army and navy. And Congress can organize the militia, leaving to the states the appointment of officers and the authority of training the militias. Now that's it. That's all the Constitution permits the federal government to do. 
Now consider the United States' ill-advised flirtation with prohibition, which was enacted nearly a hundred years ago. Nowhere in the Article 1, Section 8 powers do you see the authority to ban the manufacture, transport, or sales of alcohol within the United States. So when Americans decided they wanted a coast-to-coast ban on alcohol, they amended the Constitution to give the federal government this authority. Fourteen years later, fourteen dry years later, Americans came to their senses and revoked this authority by amending the Constitution again. Now, the 21st Amendment was the only amendment ever ratified for the purpose of undoing a previous amendment. Although one can hope that uh, there's one forthcoming that will, you know, revoke the 16th Amendment, but uh, I digress. Notice the difficulties, though, that honest people faced when trying to accomplish a pervasive political goal. Now, as of 1933, when the 21st Amendment was ratified, Americans still had a constitutionally limited federal government and what Justice Lewis Brand has famously called laboratories of democracy in the states. Now, the purpose of limiting the federal government's authority so severely was to put the lion's share of governance in state hands. Each state would govern somewhat differently, and in doing so, the nation would be a huge experiment in democracy. I mean, this makes sense, right? States that governed well would gain business and population. States that governed poorly would lose. And by observing what other states did well, each state could learn how to govern better. By losing businesses and population, each state would have an incentive to act on what it learned. So this laboratories of democracy approach brought to Americans' political lives what market competition had brought to their economic lives. But who ended up with being tasked with deciding what Article 1, Section 8 actually meant? See, here's where the wrinkle lies that enables all manner of constitutional mischief in the United States. The institution that ended up deciding what the federal government is empowered to do is itself a branch of the federal government. And it should come as no surprise that when push comes to shove, the Supreme Court routinely finds in favor of empowering the federal government. Now, this sort of mischief flowered fully in the decade following ratification of the 21st Amendment. In 1942... The Supreme case decided the Supreme Court rather decided a case, Wickard v. Filburn, in which farmer Roscoe Filburn ran afoul of a federal law that limited how much wheat he was allowed to grow. Now a careful reader might and should ask, well, where is the federal government's right to legislate the wheat market to be found? Because the word wheat is nowhere to be found in the Constitution. Well, be that as it may, the federal government's aim was clear enough. It was to keep the price of wheat high enough for farmers to remain profitable. The Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938 put an upper limit on how much wheat farmers were allowed to grow, which would serve to keep prices high by limiting supply. Roscoe Filburn had grown 12 more acres of wheat than the law allowed. But not only did he not sell the excess wheat outside of his home state, he didn't sell it at all. In fact, he used the wheat from those 12 acres to feed his cattle. Filburn was very clearly not engaging in commerce, let alone interstate commerce. Yet the Supreme Court found unanimously that because Congress had the authority to regulate interstate commerce, Congress also had the authority to prohibit Filburn from growing those 12 acres of wheat for his own use. What was the Supreme Court's reasoning? Well, you better sit down for this. 
The Supreme Court reasoned, had Filburn not fed his cattle that excess wheat, he would have been forced to purchase wheat on the open market. And even if he purchased wheat that was grown within his home state, doing so would have made less wheat available within his home state for other wheat buyers. Consequently, some wheat buyers within his home state would then have had to buy wheat from outside the state. Therefore, Philburn's non-commercial activity was, according to the United to the United States Supreme Court, interstate commerce. Oh no, it makes my head hurt too trying to follow that logic. In fact, Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan say, "Look, the mental gymnastics that went into this ruling made just about any activity interstate commerce by definition." And since Wickard. Anytime Congress has wanted to exercise power not authorized by the Constitution, lawmakers just have to simply make the argument that links whatever they want to accomplish to interstate commerce. Why? Because they know they can get away with it. And so today we have NASA, the FDA, the USDA, the EPA, federally subsidized student loans, Medicare, Medicaid, a federal minimum wage, and hundreds of other federal agencies, programs, and incentives. Now, some of these do, in fact, involve interstate commerce, but many do not. A century ago, we amended the Constitution when we wanted the federal government to exercise a new authority, that of banning alcohol. But today, we allow Congress to exercise almost any authority it likes. Further, we allow Congress to hand over its authority to unelected bureaucrats. So, whereas regulating alcohol required amending the Constitution... Regulating marijuana requires only legislation. Regulating prescription medicines requires only bureaucratic action. We have progressed so far down the path of reinterpreting the Constitution as a document that empowers government, rather than one that limits it, that the unelected bureaucrats today exercise power that the Constitution even withholds from Congress. This is why President Biden went to OSHA to enforce his workplace vaccine mandates because he knew the federal government doesn't have the power to create that kind of a policy. But the regulatory state and OSHA, which is part of that regulatory state, conceivably could go out there and exercise that power. Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan say this is troubling. Even when those bureaucrats are benevolent, altruistic, informed, and intelligent, but when they aren't, that's extremely dangerous. And as if all that weren't bad enough, we now have presidential candidates detailing their agendas to the voting public. If Congress, enabled by the Supreme Court, has overstepped its constitutional bounds, the presidency has eclipsed the, the very definition of the office. The president heads the executive branch of government. Its role, by definition, is to execute the laws that Congress passes. But presidential candidates present themselves in legislative terms. They do this almost every time they offer a plan for anything. Congress is charged with the legislative function, and this they are intended to exercise within a constitutional framework deliberately designed to make that job exceedingly difficult. So why were things designed this way? Well, to limit the ability of the federal government to do much of anything without extremely broad support. This is what safeguards the rights of the individual. And when Roscoe Filburn's right to grow wheat on his own land to feed his own cattle was violated, the rest of this was largely a foregone conclusion. Now, the sad result has been a government nearly limitless in its power. And sadder still is what this has done to our elections. 
Every four years, the American people ask candidates for more things. Neither the Congress nor the president are constitutionally authorized to deliver. And this encourages a brand of candidate to run for office who's willing to ignore the Constitution in exchange for winning elections. Now, the first step to stopping this process lies in reading, understanding, and applying the Constitution of the United States. This means, first and foremost, placing the legislative function in the hands of Congress alone and taking seriously Article 1, Section 8. It means, in short, limiting government again. I hope you find that as useful an explanation as I did. You know, I even if the Supreme Court comes down on the side of, well, we're going to strike down these mandates because they're just not constitutional, there's still the option of, is it going to be a broad kind of decision or is it going to be a very narrow decision that, uh, you know, that worked out on technicalities? But the bigger question you and I should be asking is, why are they the ones even considering this in the first place? I think it's a fair question, although it's not something that the people in power would really like you, uh, you know, poking around and trying to find out about. Which brings us to our next subject. Now, you may not realize it, but we're engaged in an existential battle over who will control the information we can access in order to understand our world. J.D. Tusseel, writing for Reason.com, says it's dangerous to allow politicians and officials to determine what constitutes truth. He says it's no secret that governments worldwide are increasingly hostile to scrutiny of their conduct. But at a moment when too many media outlets see their role as working with the state to reinforce official narratives, one advocate of press freedom reminds us that the struggle isn't over the disinformation and misinformation called out by opportunistic politicians. It's over control of information. Will people be free in the future to decide for themselves what's truth and what's BS? Or will we be spoon-fed whatever the powers that be endorse? Joel Simon, the exiting head of the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, told CNN's Brian Stelter, governments realize that they are in an existential battle over who controls information, who controls the narrative, and they're waging a frontal assault against independent journalism around the world. He added, this is the information age, and we're in kind of a millennial battle over who controls information. Who controls it? That's the power struggle. And so governments recognize, repressive governments, but even democratic governments, that this is an essential tool that they need to maintain power, and journalists are their adversaries. Now, Simon spoke after the release of a CPJ report warning of escalating attacks on journalists demonstrating that the stakes for those who offend government officials are very high. The report found 293 reporters jailed for their work around the world and at least 24 killed because of their efforts. Now, CPJ isn't the only organization recognizing that independent sources of information are under attack. Last October, the Norwegian Nobel Committee awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov for their coverage of government conduct in the Philippines and Russia in a world in which democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. The committee added free, independent, and fact-based journalism serves to protect against abuse of power, lies, and war propaganda. 
Now, unfortunately, the award illustrated the extent to which journalists can be co-opted as gatekeepers. Ressa sniffed in 2019 that the wholesale dumping of WikiLeaks actually isn't journalism, distinguishing her efforts from those of the organization's founder, Julian Assange, who languishes in prison, awaiting his fate after exposing abuse of power, lies, and war propaganda by the U.S. government. Too many journalists are open to cultivation by politicians as a separate class from purveyors of alleged misinformation, disinformation, or extremism, depending on what's convenient at the moment. For instance, before the pandemic, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern joined with French President Emmanuel Macron to develop the Christchurch Call, targeting extremist content online. Well, since then, New Zealand in particular has moved to emphasize freedom from misinformation, especially with regard to efforts against COVID-19. Similarly, the British government commissioned a 2021 report from RAND Europe promoting practices by civil society, government, media, and social media company actors in terms of reducing the spread of false information and building societal resilience with regard to hateful extremism within society during COVID-19. Now, the report highlights Germany's notorious Nets DG Act as an example that levying large fines on tech companies that do not remove false information and hateful extremist content in a timely way can increase companies' responsiveness in removing this content from their platforms. Now, just as an aside, I'll point out, false information and hateful extremist content those are terms that uh, could be pretty ambiguous in, as, as regards how they're interpreted. Maybe that's by design. The more broadly or the more vaguely the law is written, as, as opposed to the more specific it outlines, this is what constitutes a crime, the more it can be applied till it becomes a, a catch-all. Something I don't like? Well, that sounds like hateful extremist rhetoric. Oh, it's, it's a tried and true pattern. Now, J.D. Tussil points out, despite robust First Amendment protections for free speech rights, the U.S. is not immune to powerful people's desire to control information. For example, last year, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, we're just going to have to figure out how we can rein in our media environment so that you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. End quote. Now, there's a part of me that says, okay, decided by whom? Who gets to determine if it's disinformation and misinformation? In July, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called on social media companies to act as government proxies by removing what the administration flags as narratives dangerous to public health. Interestingly, CPJ's Joel Simon predicted that the pandemic would empower efforts to control information. He warned back in March of 2020, we must be mindful that when we get to the other side of the pandemic, we may be left with a narrative being written by China that government control over information was essential to combating the crisis. That would be a devastating blow to the global information system, one that could endure even as the memories of the terrible pandemic we are currently facing slowly fade. Since then, he's proven painfully prescient as politicians' concerns have morphed from fighting extremism to suppressing disinformation to a weird amalgam of the two, unified by the alleged need to control what the public says, reads, and shares. 
Now, J.D. Tusil says, look, that's not to say, by the way, that material tagged as extremism isn't extreme or that posts called out as disinformation aren't false. To open a web browser is to encounter a wide world of bigotry or concerns about vaccine safety or charges about election integrity or fact-free arguments over whether or not COVID-19 even exists. But he says BS isn't a recent invention. His point is that free societies recognize it's a lot more dangerous to let government officials designate what constitutes capital T truth than it is to respect people's rights to decide for themselves. So when officialdom makes the call, legitimate news outlets get called fake, as former President Trump often smeared his critics. Extremists get inflated with opponents of school policies, as the Justice Department did last fall. And claims that COVID-19 originated in a lab leak in China are suppressed as conspiracy theories before later earning respectful treatment. He says truthful information doesn't require a government seal of approval because government officials are as flawed and biased as anyone else. They're prone to declaring debates over for convenient reasons of their own. Even as new evidence emerges and disagreements remain unresolved, not necessarily because of rejection of facts, but often over fundamental differences in values and preferences. Powerful figures are in no position to save us from bad information because they're a major source of the stuff themselves. And if allowed, can use force to impose their versions of reality on dissenters. So J.D. Tusil says, look, we are really in an existential battle over who controls information, just as Joel Simon warned. It's not a battle over what constitutes truth, which remains hard as ever to determine. Instead, this battle over control of information is a struggle over our freedom to decide for ourselves without having other people's decisions crammed down our throats. That's pretty powerful stuff. Now, one of the things that I would recommend is, you know, if you are concerned about, uh, well, but how do I know? How do I find, you know, truth and determine what is truth and what's, what's sound and what isn't? And, and sadly, there are a lot of people, and I think very well-intentioned people, who, for whatever reason, they're, they're looking for somebody else to do it. Because, I don't know, maybe they've been trained to distrust themselves. There's, there's an awful lot of the systems around us that are dedicated to convincing us, hey, you're too broken to be making these kind of decisions yourself. I mean, they're very patronizing. They treat us like little children that, uh, you know, if something bad happens, you don't try to solve your problems yourself. You need to sit down there on the curb and cry until somebody brings you cookies and milk. And some people are very happy to do that. It's a lot easier than accepting responsibility and, you know, trying to noodle your way out of problems and figure out your own solutions. I get that. At the same time, you, you can't outsource your truth-seeking or fact-finding, if you will, to other people. Now, that's not to say that you, you have to go out and you know, write a story on everything that you want to know about. You just have to be willing to make up your own mind after carefully examining the facts. I hope that makes sense. I get asked this quite a bit, and I've been asked this for many years. People will pull me aside and say, hey, What's a news source that I can trust or what's a good source of information that I can go to? You know, and, and if, if they're doing it from the standpoint of I'm just looking for somebody to tell me what to think. I'm happy to recommend great sources of information and there are a lot of good people out there. But 
ultimately, I try to remind people as gently as possible, it's your mind. It's your worldview. Don't uh, outsource what you think to somebody else. Don't become dependent on somebody else. No matter how bright their smile, no matter how minty fresh their breath or pearly white their teeth or the twinkle in their eye when they smile at you. That's a decision you have to make for yourself. And I'm suggesting, yeah, even even if you resonate with some of the stuff that I share, if you think, yeah, Brian's a pretty good guy. I kind of like his, his take on stuff. Don't take it at, uh, you know, don't take it like it's written in stone. You have to learn to think like an expert and you have to be willing to dig and vet that information for yourself. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that's not hard work or that it's not time consuming because it is. What that means is you and I have to prioritize what really matters to us in the grand scheme of things. What do I really want to know? I mean, some people just want to know what's the latest Hollywood gossip. I mean, what's the deal behind Bob Saget's death? Who was there foul play? You know, did anybody get it on film? Is there a $10,000 reward? I don't know. You know, it's gossip and personalities will always sell. And I guess it gets eyeballs, you know, on, on video screens or reading stories. But if you're looking for substance, you're going to have to train your mind to think in terms of what is substance and, and how do I get to the substance? Best way I know to do that is read old books. Not because they have all the answers to modern life's problems, but because they will help you organize your thinking in ways that when you are presented with a problem or a challenge, you know the right questions to ask, and in so doing, you become that much more propaganda-proof. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. (laughs) 